Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonoella. And on this episode, we are thrilled to be joined by Professor Terrence Lyons. Professor Lyons is the Associate Professor of Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. And Professor Lyons focuses on comparative peace processes and, and post-conflict politics, uh, particularly with focus on Africa. Uh, he has written a lot about how the nature of war termination shapes post-war politics about how insurgent groups transform into political parties. He's written many books, uh, written many articles. Uh, He's also uh, consulted for the Department of State, USAID, the UN, many think tanks. Uh, He is a particular expert in in Ethiopia, knows the country well, was actually an election observer in Ethiopia, among other countries. Uh, And back in 2017, he actually testified uh, in front of Congress on the crisis in Ethiopia, Uh, So, Professor, you are the perfect person to have this conversation with about the crisis in Ethiopia, and we'll be talking about the Tigray region in particular. So thank you, sir, so much for coming on the podcast. My my pleasure. It seems like I've been talking about the crisis in Ethiopia for quite a number of years. Certainly. And uh, I mean, I guess my first question is, I mean, we see... We've seen this conflict in Ethiopia, Ethiopia to many of us, suddenly sprout up just the, in these past few weeks. Uh, unfortunately for many people in the United States, Africa is often this forgotten sort of region when you compare it to our attention paid to the Middle East, to Europe, and to East Asia. But, I mean, certainly there are many geopolitical consequences of this conflict. So just to provide some context to both us uh, and our listeners, Right now, we're seeing the Tigray People's Liberation Front, otherwise known as the TPLF, uh, in conflict with the Ethiopian government. Uh, could you just give us some context and some background on like, you know, whether this issue just suddenly sprouted up, uh, whether it's been a longstanding issue? Why did this happen? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, and by it, it most certainly did not uh, just uh, uh, sprout out or, or just... Uh, uh, you know, explode out of nothing. Let me start off, with, as you said, with a bit of context. And in Ethiopia, that can be thousands of years, but I won't do that. I'm going to start off, though, by saying two things. One is on the geopolitical context. You started off, I think, correctly, saying that the Africa has lots of interesting and complex uh, and important geopolitical uh, uh, struggles that are often uh, misunderstood. In Ethiopia, there's, there's two things uh, t- to know. First of all, it's a country, it's the second largest uh, country in terms of population in sub-Saharan Africa, has something like 120 million people. It's a huge, huge place. It's also very close to uh, the Gulf, to Saudi Arabia, to Yemen, uh, to Somalia, to places where uh, the Gulf countries, UAE, uh, have been involved and are building up their their uh, trying to build up their influence where Turkey is involved uh, and so it, it is while on the one hand uh, I'm not going to make a claim it's more strategically important than say Europe or uh, the Middle East it's an area that deserves uh, deserves attention so let me go back not to the very origins of of humankind but to uh, a transition that took place in Ethiopia in 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 2018. Uh, the ruling party up until that point was called uh, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. 
I'll try not to get everybody lost in initials, but it was the EPRDF. The TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, was one component of that ruling party, which was actually a coalition of four parties. After a period of sustained uh, uh, popular demonstrations, really a popular uprising, particularly in the Oromo region, the region where the, the most populous region in uh, Ethiopia, uh, there was a transition where the TPLF leadership was displaced by others within the ruling party, particularly uh, from the Oromo uh, wing of the party. And at first, that seemed like it would be a, a very successful uh, transition. The, t- the TPLF was unhappy that it had been displaced, but uh, Abi Ahmed, uh, the new prime minister, was a young, uh, uh, much younger generation, younger figure, seemed very popular, had mass rallies, uh, and promised reform, invited a political exile's home, uh, allowed a political opposition groups that had been characterized as terrorists to come back and engage in the uh, in, in the politics that at that time had promised uh, uh, democracy. The TPLF, the Tigray uh, people, uh, represents something like 6% of the total population. So it's a relatively small region and a relatively poor region, but they had been politically uh, dominant. And so uh, it looked like perhaps while they would be unhappy, having lost uh, power, uh, that the uh, transition could uh, could progress with a powerful, uh, uh, you know, a, a coalition of support. But security was always bad since 2018 when Prime Minister Abi came into power. There were conflicts between the Aroma, don't worry about the details, but between the Aromo region and the Somali region and between an area called Gedu and an area called Guji and on the outskirts of Addis Ababa and in Welaga in west, the western part of the Aromo region. The state was just much weaker than it used to be and Ethiopia struggled to find a, 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 a peaceful way forward. Let me now get directly to the question of the, of the TPLF. So again, this, this, this story can go back a long ways, but let me just go back to June. In June, the TPLF, which continued to dominate the Tigray region, the northernmost region of Ethiopia, the region that borders uh, Eritrea, held its own elections. Uh, Ethiopia postponed elections because of COVID, uh, and frankly, because it probably wasn't prepared and didn't have sufficient security to hold the elections. But I don't. But anyways, lots of countries postponed elections because of COVID. And so I didn't regard that as particularly uh, surprising. The TPLF said, well, we're going to have elections. Uh, and they did have their own elections in their own state. The analogy isn't quite right, but it would be a bit as if for whatever reason, the U.S. postponed elections and, you know, uh, Massachusetts said, oh, we're going to have our elections anyways, and we're going to elect our governor and our senators and our representatives. So it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a direct challenge to the government's uh, authority to govern the entire uh, country. And then increasingly, they became escalating kind of tit for tat or escalating on both sides of it's not a surprise that a conflict was brewing. It seemed to be you know many, many different ways that a conflict was brewing. I'm going to give you an example of what the government in Addis was doing, because then I'm going to tell you about the, the TPLF. The government in Addis Ababa, the federal authorities, 
they have an across all of Ethiopia, an awful lot of money comes from the capital to the regions. They're, the money that they use to pay for school teachers and health workers comes in transfers from the federal government. Well, because the federal government didn't like the government in the region of Tigray, they began to try to transfer the money directly to subregions. Right. And so this is just going to directly undermine the power of the TPLF, directly try to take away their their resources. Very uh, provocative. Now, most immediately uh, in early November, uh, well, within within the region of Tigray, Ethiopia had its one of its largest, perhaps its largest uh, national uh, military uh, outpost, the Northern Command, which was its single largest command. Uh, it was also, it had most of its mechanized, most of its anti-aircraft, most of its airplanes, because it was worried about conflict with Eritrea. So that's where most of the army was based. The TPLF, in a, in a preemptive strike, attacked the Northern Command. So now we have, to go back to my not exact uh, uh, analogy, we have a Massachusetts attacking the U.S. Army in you know bases in Massachusetts are really uh, uh, you know sort of beyond provocative, really quite an astonishing uh, act. The, some people equate it to the uh, you know uh, uh, in, during during the Civil War when the the Southern states began to attack uh, Union uh, military uh, 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 posts, and so from that at that point the conflict escalated extremely quickly extremely violently, uh, and uh, Tigray is now, uh, uh, well, it's, well, and and so the war has raged in Tigray. I can get into more details there. Is there parts of that background, though, that need a bit more elaboration, or are you happy for me to keep going? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I have one clarifying question. I think then Ryan has a question after me, but, uh, you know, when we're looking at the TPLF, you had mentioned that they were di- displaced from the ruling uh, coalition of parties. Uh, just want to know how dominant were they in that ruling uh, coalition? And when we're thinking about this coalition, uh, for our listeners, I mean, you know, we're talking about sometimes we talk about parliamentary systems, for example. I mean, not to make this analogy, but I'm going to make the analogy in Israel, right? Like you have a bunch of coalitions that, you know, put, for example, Benjamin Netanyahu in as prime minister. Likud, for example, does not necessarily hold 61 seats. It only holds a portion of those seats, but it dominates that coalition with other political parties. Uh, is that similar to how the TPLF uh, held power in Ethiopia? Uh, no, in, in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first thing to know is that in the 1990s, when, let me take that back, in the 1970s and 1980s, the TPLF led uh, a rebel uh, campaign. They were engaged in a prolonged, uh, what, they, what they called the national liberation struggle against the very brutal regime of Mengistu Halimariam. They, they basically uh, got power in 1991 because they won the war. And as a sort of battle-hardened group, uh, they were they were very dominant. The other parties that were composed of people from different regions. So there was the Tigray Regional Party, there was an Oromo Regional Party, there was an Amhara Regional Party, and then there was a Southern 
a party that in and of itself was a coalition. And so those four parties formed the coalition. But the TPLF dominated that coalition in part by uh, by repression and by bald uh, use of force and, and its uh, ability to... Uh, uh, you know, arrest and intimidate people, but also because it was the senior partner. The other parties were slower to organize. They were in, invented in the 1980s or, or even later. Um, over time, though, when you move from 1991 to, say, 2015, the TPLF, the, the, the coalition began to operate more like a coalition, and the TPLF was no longer able uh, to dominate it. Uh, and so when the TPLF was pushed out, it was another of the parties within the ruling coalition that pushed them out. So it was a, 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 a switch of leadership within the ruling party rather than a different party uh, coming in uh, and, 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 and controlling it. Now, the piece of the story that I also didn't tell you, and then I know that Ryan has a question, is that the, the leader who pushed the TPLF out, the, the Abi Ahmed, who's the, the prime minister, then in, I guess it was 2019, created a new political party called the Prosperity Party that absorbed the Amhara, the Oromo, and the other uh, parties, not the TPLF. The TPLF said, we don't want anything to do with your new ruling party. We're the TPLF, and we think that we're doing it right, and you guys are wrong. And so in, with that switch, they were really out of the center. There was a new ruling party in Addis Ababa. Well, Professor, I think you're laying out kind of the, the how complicated this situation is. And a, a, an interesting part of this is, is the idea of ethnic federalism, right? The idea that in Ethiopia, there are many, many eth ethno-linguistic groups. Uh, and the Tigray region, right, is, it's, a, it's a region, but it's also, right, this ethnic group. And so would you mind kind of outlining kind of how Ethiopian politics works and how ethnic federalism plays into the conflict we're seeing? Yeah, boy, you, you wanted it. You, you thought I was giving you the complicated story. I was making it. I was making it simple. It's actually <laughs> right. orders of magnitude more complicated. But let me try to give you the the, the broad outlines so that it's uh, useful rather than just confusing to people uh, who are listening. So in 1991, when the Tigray People's Liberation Front won the war, they were an ethnic liberation movement. That was the Tigrayan people from Tigray in this Tigrayan room, uh, Tigrayan uh, group. They formed other parties that were also based on ethnicity and then formed a coalition uh, with those other ethnically defined parties. They created ethnically defined regions. So there is an Oromo region, which is where not all, but most Oromos live, uh, where, the, where the, the ruling party is the Oromo ruling party, where the language of instructions in the schools is in the Oromo language, where, you know, everything it's, it's for, by, and about the Oromo. Uh, and this was done quite consciously. It was done in a way that reminded many outside observers of Yugoslavia in all the worst ways you can imagine reminding people of Yugoslavia that this, uh, many argued, seemed like a recipe for the uh, collapse uh, of the Ethiopian state. But from 1991 until 2016, the ruling party was strong enough and the TPLF sufficiently in the driver's seat of the ruling party, that they were able to keep stability and a fair measure of development as well. Ethiopia had over 10% GDP growth per year for almost 10 years. It was one of the fastest growing countries in the world between roughly 2005 
and, and 2015 on this ethnic uh, federal basis. So now in Ethiopia today, you have a lot of people, a lot of political leaders and constituencies who say, we want to keep that ethnic federalism because we think that uh, being in a region that's protected by people who are like us is the best way for us not to be marginalized and discriminated against. There is an alternative that says, no, 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 that just keeps us divided. What we need is a greater sense of Ethiopian unity. Uh, And that's part of what you're seeing here. The Ethiopian unity forces broadly the 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 piece of this that the uh, the prosperity party represents and Prime Minister Abi Abi Ahmed against forces that favor uh, uh, this the continuation of this ethno federalism, which includes not only the Tigray uh, uh, wing but also many people in the Oromo region and in other regions of the country. Definitely. And uh, I mean, something that sort of sprouts to mind is, you know, I'm looking at this Ethiopian conflict, and obviously there are many actors around it in the region. And uh, when I look at, for example, the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we see a lot of uh, other international actors involved, whether it's, you know, Rwanda, uh, Angola, and so on. So has there been any sort of similar international uh, involvement, regional involvement, or if not interventionism that has affected Ethiopia's domestic political uh, climate and its conflicts? The, the the first part about that is to is that the pattern has been historically the opposite. Ethiopia is the largest state by far, has been the strongest, at least in terms of its military and its uh, diplomatic weight. Uh, the Africa Union is headquartered in Addis Ababa, and that gives it a particular symbolic uh, position. And it has intervened most notably in Somalia. Uh, sent troops into Somalia, has been on the ground in Somalia for, I guess it's 14 years, depending how you count it, the most recent uh, intervention, intervening in its northern neighbor, Eritrea, and deeply involved in Sudan and South Sudan, sometimes as a peacemaker. Ethiopia was involved in negotiations in Khartoum, uh, was that a year or two years ago? Sometimes as a peacekeeping force, there's Ethiopian troops in uh, Darfur, in South Sudan, in a part of Sudan called Abye, uh, and as part of an Amasom uh, AU, Africa Union force in Somalia. Uh, so, but uh, in this moment of crisis, there's also lots of external uh, powers that are playing uh, are playing roles. Probably the most immediate, I guess, would be Eritrea. Uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, two years ago, or was it just a year ago, actually, uh, because he reached out to uh, uh, Eritrea and began to normalize relations after uh, almost 20 years of, uh, of a frozen uh, border, following a border, following a border war. Um, and so on both sides of Tigray, the Eritrean side and the Ethiopian side are, are in friendly relations that seem to threaten uh, Tigray. Certainly many Tigrayans see it as threatening. Uh, and so, and then furthermore, if you go out further uh, in, into further circles, I, I said in my very first remarks in terms of the geopolitical context, that the uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Egypt and so on are deeply involved in 
in neighboring states for all kinds of different uh, different agendas. Maybe it's worth noting, uh, without getting into it, because it, it is its own uh, podcast, the question of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which the Ethiopians are building on one of the tributaries, the main tributary, actually, uh, of the Nile that Egypt says it cannot tolerate because Egypt says it needs it needs the water, and the U.S. has been involved in some negotiations there. So Egypt and Ethiopia have very uh, contentious relationships because of this uh, dam controversy. So Ethiopia, this current, you know, this conflict that probably most of the people listening to this can't quite even picture where it is, uh, the, the province of Tigray, does get linked up to questions of uh, Yemen and the Gulf and Egypt and what's happening in Sudan and the transition in Sudan and the civil war in South Sudan and what next for Somalia and the Al-Shabaab movement uh, in Somalia and on and on and on and on. It's very much beyond just the particular region and and has uh, uh, ripple effects or ramifications across the region. Absolutely. Well, you know, because you mentioned these regional effects and I was, you know, just got a notification about the U.S., announcing withdrawal from Somalia. I mean, truly, as we've been recording this podcast. So um, I'd love to get your first take, Professor, on what you think the impact will be for both Somalia and, of course, the region, right? Ethiopia is, uh, you know, right next door. Um, And so it, it of course, has uh, impacts both within Somalia, but, of course, on the periphery as well. And so what what could this portend for the region with the U.S. withdrawal? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, what to say? Uh, the... the uh, the, a, a process that reduces the U.S. footprint in Somalia is, is uh, desirable, whether a kind of a, a rapid withdrawal by kind of fiat rather than negotiations uh, with a plan on how this is going to lead to a more stable uh, Somalia is maybe not the best way to do it. And that's sort of the same criticism about uh, the U.S. precipitous withdrawals some would say precipitous, uh, from Afghanistan. The, the logic has been that the U.S., particularly through drones, drones in terms of intelligence, but also drones as an offensive weapon, have been able to keep the Shabab, this Islamist movement, uh, you know, back on its heels. And so that the local, the, the regional peacekeeping forces could do their job better because they could, uh, they were being supported by this high technology uh, that the United States was granting them. If the United States withdraws, well, then the other peacekeeping states are going to be much more reluctant uh, to leave their bases or to take any kind of forward, uh, you know, positions because they'll feel uh, more vulnerable. More directly to Ethiopia, Ethiopia has been withdrawing troops from Somalia, which is another reason why we should worry about uh, 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 the security in, in Somalia. They've been withdrawing them uh, apparently, in order to have sufficient forces to do the intervention in Tigray, I, I say supposedly because, in fact, they rotate troops in and out of Somalia all the time. And the Ethiopian army is of such a size that moving ten thousand troops one way or the other does not really uh, shape their overall, uh, you know, uh, security uh, posture. But there's a there's a concern that the war in Tigray, particularly if it continues, will lead Ethiopia to. Uh, feel uh, justified or compelled to remove forces uh, from Somalia. So that's just one of the many ways that the security system 
the regional security, the regional insecurity, we might say, system of the Horn of Africa uh, plays out in, uh, in that links a conflict in Tigray with a question of U.S. troops in, in Somalia. They, they get linked pretty, uh, pretty quickly and, and, and pretty uh, definitively. Yeah, you definitely make a good point there, especially when we're talking about you know our efforts against uh, Islamic extremists and terrorist groups such as uh, Al Shabaab. I mean, these are all, as you say, very much interlinked. But I sort of wanted to shift gears and just talk a bit about the human impact. I mean, I was reading, I think, uh, some summaries of what happened in the Ethiopian civil war, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, over a million people were killed in that conflict, from what I heard, and. Uh, I mean, last week we saw this village just get massacred, 600 people dead. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of refugees? Are we seeing a lot of refugee inflows into Sudan, into uh, neighboring countries? Uh, what are we looking at here? Like how big of a humanitarian crisis uh, are we going to see? There's, a, be a, as I have on some of your other questions, just go back for a bit of context and then try to get us up to date uh, in a way that's that's uh, that, that's understandable. You're, cor- you're absolutely correct that the war, particularly if you're thinking of the 1980s, Gista Halimariam and the famine that took place, this was a time when international uh, pop stars were recording records to try to raise money for Ethiopia. The, 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 the level of death and destruction was was terrible. It was, it was uh, uh, almost unimaginable, except unfortunately, uh, very true. Since now, let me jump ahead to go to the uh, the, the period of uh, 2017, really 2018, 2019. There was also, as I said, significant uh, violence and displacement. At one point in 2020, Ethiopia had more internally displaced persons than any place else in the world. I think it was 3 million internally displaced persons within this single country that was seemingly at peace. And the United States and other donors were treating as this country that was transitioning uh, towards democracy. And because Ethiopia is so huge, remember I started off by saying it's like 110 or 120 million people. Uh, the potential for humanitarian disasters is similarly so huge. So if 3 million are displaced by in Syria, it's it's a much much larger percentage of the population than the three million are displaced in Ethiopia. That but that doesn't mean that there's still not three million people who have uh, needs in terms of uh, humanitarian assistance uh, and protection. Now, with this particular war uh, in 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 Tigray, let me pause on that just for a second. The government in Addis Ababa has insisted on calling it a. A police action. They say our problem is not with Tigray or even with the TPLF, but rather there's a group of some 30 uh, individuals who they've identified as this kind of mafia that is behind all kinds of of, uh, of crimes. That being said, it's a police operation that involves you know aerial bombardment and artillery and, and some really terrible uh, types of violence. Um, the uh, a lot of refugees are fleeing into Sudan. A lot of refugees from Tigray are fleeing fleeing into Sudan, which in some ways is you know sort of heartbreakingly ironic because in some cases their parents or great grandparents or grandparents rather were also refugees in Sudan. We thought that finally the the refugees could go back to Tigray. It was a peaceful developing place. 
But now the many Tigrayans are fleeing back to the exact same places. There are reports, but we pause here for one other uh, framing point, uh, and that is that there's an incredible information blackout in Tigray right now. There's no internet, there's no telephones, there's no reporters. It's very, very difficult to know what is actually happening on the ground. And you shouldn't believe most of what you read on social media because it is so hyper-partisan. Some of it is undoubtedly true, but you can't know which bits are true. It's very difficult to discern which bits are true. But there are reports that the uh, the, the the federal forces, the forces of Addis Ababa, are trying to prevent people from fleeing into uh, Sudan. They're also alleging that the refugees in Sudan uh, are mostly young men, implying that they're mostly TPLF fighters rather than genuine uh, uh, refugees. I don't have any firsthand information on any of that, but it's just to indicate how, uh, you know, really, you know, frankly, ugly this war has become or allegations as to who refugees being uh, not allowed to flee and, and refugees being characterized as, as, as fighters. The Ethiopian government says it's taken control over uh, Mikele, the regional capital in Tigray, although the New York Times uh, today ran a story uh, where they uh, uh, reported that they were in contact with doctors at the main hospital, which said that there's you know injured people uh, coming into the hospital and shelling that was ongoing. I, I don't have, again, any information to sort that out other than there's reasons to be afraid that there's a really uh, the human costs of this police action, if you take the Ethiopian government's uh, framing, or civil war is going to be uh, extraordinary and is going to take, you know, decades uh, to overcome. And uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, the Ethiopian government refers to it as this police action, but you I mean, you just said civil war and you likened, I mean, the initial attack to uh, Fort Sumter when the Confederacy attacked the Union way back in 1861. Uh, how would you categorize this? Is this an actual civil war? Is this more like a an insurrection? What is this? Well, I mean, the, 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 the question is worth asking because there's no simple answer uh, to it. Yeah. Um, that there are, there is a discrete set of individuals who are named in the Ethiopian government documents who the Ethiopian government has, you know, charged as criminals makes it uh, something like a, like a police action. If, if, if you imagined, uh, you, you know, uh, if uh, in, in the face of some kind of a conspiracy, uh, Italy went in and arrested uh, 50 alleged mafia uh, leaders, you'd say, okay, that's a police action. But when you go in, not only with the full military, uh, with, you know, as I said, with, uh, you know, jet fighters and artillery uh, and so forth, but furthermore, uh, you go in with uh, allegations, at least, of interfering with refugee flows. There's, again, I'll say allegations because I can't confirm what I, I, let me put it this way, what has been reported to be the large-scale uh, discrimination against Tigrayans in Ethiopia. So that Tigrayans in the government, Tigrayans in things like Ethiopian Airlines, even Tigrayans within UN peacekeeping missions are being uh, uh, purged or being fired. Uh, so that makes you say, it doesn't sound like a police operation anymore. It makes it seem dangerously like 
uh, an ethnically defined, not even maybe a civil war, something much more worrisome when people are defined on the basis of their ethnicity uh, being uh, the enemy. And so one of the consequences of this war, in addition to the trauma of all the refugees and the, the families that will be shattered by the death of loved ones, is that a kind of uh, polarized, what was already a polarized uh, ethnic uh, social map becomes much, much more uh, polarized. Uh, and that will take a long, long time uh, to work back, I'm afraid. So, so with the difficulty of right this discrimination, the persecution uh, of the Tigrayans, are, are we likely to see other regions um, kind of attempt to push back against Addis Ababa? Is it is there any similarity um, of you know this this ethnic conflict, or is there more homogeneity within other parts of Ethiopia? The you know, uh, boy, it sure would be great if there was more homogeneity and we could see this just as a problem in Tigray, but it's not at all. Uh, it is uh, there are other parts of Ethiopia that are also uh, deeply divided. Most significantly, uh, I would say, is the is the question of the Oromo region. Let me just spend a, just a couple of sentences on that. The Oromo region is the largest region. It's the region that completely surrounds the capital of Addis Ababa. It stretches from you know, the Somali border to just about the Sudanese uh, border. It's a massive region. It's a region of great ag- uh, agricultural uh, productivity. It's where a lot of the coffee is grown. It's where a lot of gold is found and a lot of other, a lot of other things. That there were there were there were uh, leaders in that group who were very very hostile to the government of Abi Ahmed. Two uh, very uh, famous uh, uh, leaders, uh, 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 a gentleman named Bekele, and maybe even more. Uh, no, I don't say notorious, but a, a better known uh, figure, Jawar Muhammad, have been arrested. These are opposition leaders from the Oromo region who were arrested before this war began. It's yet another uh, yet another uh, story of how Ethiopia is being threatened on so many uh, different fronts. The reason why uh, Jawa Muhammad might be uh, a little uh, better known, perhaps, is that he used to live in New York City, and he was a diaspora media guy. And then he returned to Ethiopia uh, with the transition that brought uh, uh, Prime Minister Abiy into power. And then when he fell out with the authorities, he's, uh, well, he's been arrested. Authorities, of course, say it's for crimes. But it seems to be uh, in the context of a, a, a move against his party. We had talked about a bit about the humanitarian costs and the crisis that has erupted out of this. We have talked about uh, whether or not this is a civil war. I mean, regardless, uh, so many people are dying, and uh, you know we're still seeing this sort of go on. Uh, what have uh, international governmental organizations? What has the United Nations? Uh, said about this? Have there been efforts on the parts of other countries, the world, a community to send an aid to Ethiopia and so on? Yeah, another another uh, great question. Uh, it, well, the, the initially, the government of Abiy, when he came to power, was seen as a huge breath of fresh air. It seemed like they were going to have the possi- finally the possibility of a democratic transition. The United States was very supportive of Abiy, as was the European Union and all the major uh, donors. Increasingly, that became more and more tentative or, or tenuous. The United States got off on a kind of a tangent relating, in my view, a tangent relating to the 
the GERD, the STAM, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, where uh, President uh, Trump got crosswise with Ethiopia or Ethiopia got crosswise with the United States. But so when this war in Tigray broke out, the first reaction of many donors, particularly in Europe, well, Europe and in other parts of Africa, was to call for Africa Union mediation, to call for a ceasefire and talks. This is a political problem that can only be resolved through negotiations and dialogue, not on the battlefield was the kind of the narrative or the messaging that was being used. And the Africa Union created a very high po- profile a mediation team that included uh, South Africa, the former uh, Liberian uh, president, Alan Johnson Sirleaf, the former uh, president of Mozambique, I guess it was, or Tanzania. So this was a real high level uh, delegation. President, uh, Prime Minister Abi kept saying, I don't need talks. This is a police action. Don't tell me what to do. I have criminals to arrest. It's not your business. And really went back to that kind of my internal business is my is, is, is nobody else's affair rather than a kind of you know, broader sense that uh, Africa and the world has interests when there's a massive displacement and questions about targeting of civilians uh, and so forth. That mediation in its first effort, frankly, went nowhere. It's still around. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it won't have an opportunity to come in when uh, the time is more uh, ripe uh, for resolution, as uh, Zartman uh, put it m- many years ago. Um, the UN has also, and the European Union again, the European Union in a much more forward-leaning or assertive position than the United States. As you might imagine, the United States is uh, is so busy sorting itself out, and the Biden administration has not yet have the people and the institutions in place to 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 take uh, uh, very uh, dramatic moves. But the European Union has been pushing the government in Addis Ababa quite hard. Uh, it's been it, it, the European Union gives direct budgetary support to Ethiopia. The U.S. doesn't. I mean, this goes directly into the Ethiopian government's budget. And has withheld that or putting that frozen that pending discussions about the war. The UN has gone in, in in a very, very clear way talking about refugees. The Ethiopians said the UN can go to any place that, that where, where there's humanitarian needs in government controlled parts of Tigray. And the UN or the EU, I guess it was, it said that's not good enough. Government controlled areas are not all of Tigray. We need to have guaranteed access to all of Tigray. So there's a humanitarian piece that um, uh, is is trying to exert uh, a pressure and influence. There's a political piece that's probably on the black burner at the moment, although there have been efforts, and I'm sure there'll uh, continue to be efforts. The United States has largely played, the State Department won't agree with me on this, but I think the United States has been restricted to kind of symbolic speech, in other words, saying that we condemned violence and so on. But Secretary of State Pompeo talked to Prime Minister uh, Abi a few days ago, and so, you know, that's what diplomats are supposed to do, and he's done it. Um, but uh, I think the Europeans are more uh, in the leadership, uh, frankly. Uh, uh, the Europeans and the Africans are more in the leadership right now with regard to trying to uh, promote a peace process in Ethiopia. 
So, Professor, the the Prime Minister has quote unquote declared victory um, over this this conflict, but of course, the TPLF uh, have said they're going to continue fighting. Uh, some of its leadership has fled into the mountains, and so uh, it, it seems like we're going to see this conflict continue on. Uh, one, what what is your kind of thoughts about where this conflict may go? And I guess you know, given your your brief discussion on the EU's response and also, I guess, the lack of U.S. response. What are the potential uh, ways in which the international community can come together to exert pressure on the Ethiopian government in order to kind of stop uh, this this conflict from worsening? Uh, let me uh, answer that sort of in the in, in narrowly, and then make a make a broader uh, point. There, there are some very, some very smart, well-informed people who expect that the TPLF will kind of return to its roots as a guerrilla force and will be very difficult to dislodge from the mountains that they know uh, so well. I have no doubt that they know those mountains well, but 2020 is not the 1980s and the region is not the region that it was. They're unlikely to get a lot of support, even just for logistics, from you know, Sudan or Eritrea. Uh, so they'll, they'll be they'll be quite isolated. They won't be able to access uh, arms flows and, and and things like that. So I, I, I it's my expectation, as I said, contrary to some very smart, well informed people, that we're unlikely to see uh, a return to the insurgency uh, coming out of Tigray. Now, let me, with terms of the international community, let me put this in in a, in a broader sense, and that is, if you think back to 2018, the story I've told since 2018. It's a story of incredible uh, uh, incredible episodes of political violence, not just the one that we've been talking about in Tigray, but also in the Oromo region, also in uh, in, in various cities, in, in the southern region, uh, in, the, in the far west region. I won't go into all the details. You can get lost in the, in the initials, but it's been a very, very violent type of politics. If you ask where does Ethiopia what are the what's the possibilities for Ethiopia in 2025? I would argue that rather than how the war in Tigray turns out mattering, what will matter is that can the regime adjust itself to an Ethiopia that's going to be increasingly dominated from the political and economic and demographic weight of the south. This is mostly the Oromo region, but the southern region. In other words, Tigray way in the north is not Ethiopia's, it's not going to be at the core of Ethiopia's future politics. Similarly, cities, Ethiopia is becoming increasingly urban. And so what type of political dispensation will there be for these multi-ethnic cities? We talked about ethno-nationalism or or multinational federalism earlier. Uh, There's an awful lot of people who live in cities uh, that don't fit, don't fall into that you know, multinational federation model uh, particularly well in a country that will have a population that is increasingly young and increasingly well-educated and increasingly tied uh, to the internet and to uh, you know, cell phones and social media. And so that's what, you, that's what Ethiopia is going to have to sort out, that sorting out Tigray and the relationships between the center and Tigray are extremely difficult, but they should not distract from the even more important and possibly even more difficult challenges of how do you deal with this massive shift, this massive transition that's going on 
uh, in Ethiopia. And I think there are things that the international community can do on that larger agenda that it shouldn't lose sight of, that it shouldn't keep itself so focused on what are you going to do with the crisis of the day, the very important crisis of the day, the crisis of the day that's leading to you know, this, all of the humanitarian uh, costs that we've talked about before, but still it's not the only challenge that faces uh, Ethiopia. And to, and, to, and to work very hard and consistently and across all the international community on working with all stakeholders, which of course includes the Ethiopian government, but includes a lot of opposition parties, including some that have their leadership in jail, uh, to work out um, the, the modalities of dialogue, of consultations, of designing the future Ethiopia. And all of that's been, not surprisingly, put on the shelf in the context of the current emergency in Tigray. But it's, I think, essential that it doesn't get uh, lost in the in, in the tragic drama of what's happening in Tigray today. It certainly is a very tragic drama, and regrettably so. Uh, as we as this situation ensues, I mean, so many of us want to keep track of what's happening and learn more about it. How would you suggest, you know, we go about uh, looking for those sources? What sources should we keep track on? Because, I mean, you visit CNN, right? This is not front page news. You had to dig, you know, somewhat deep. Uh, how would you suggest, you know, we keep track of this and we learn more? That's a great and, and difficult question. Uh, I mean, CNN isn't going to give you much. BBC will give you a bit more. Uh, Al Jazeera probably has better coverage than CNN and maybe covers the politics of southern Ethiopia a, a bit more. Um, unfortunately, where I get a lot of my information is off of Twitter and social media, and it's very difficult to figure out who's who and who has a political agenda uh, and, and, and who doesn't. Uh, and so to kind of wade through uh, all of that is, is, not, uh, is not easy. I will say that, you know, you usually have to look for this stuff. But for example, while you might not have seen it, if you were just looking at the New York Times to figure out what Trump said and what's happening with the, with the COVID virus, if you had searched the New York Times for Ethiopia today, you would have found a very important and interesting article that came out of their bureau, I guess, in Nairobi, uh, that had a, you know, an important amount of original uh, uh, reporting. This is the story I told you where they were calling the, the doctors in the hospital in, in Mekele. Sometimes you see very good reporting coming out of some of the British newspapers and the wires, whether it's Reuters or uh, The Guardian. Um, but it, it, it is, uh, so, my, so my message is uh, you, you have to look for it a bit and you have to be very cautious in looking at social media because it is so polarized. It is so filled with myths and disinformation that, um, uh, well, and also it's, it also has a fair amount of, frankly, hate speech in it. And, you know, I, I wade through mm. it because it's my job <laughs> or anyways, I, I wade through it because it's my research agenda, but it's, um, it's, 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 uh, without, you know, casting aspersions on any individual uh, communicators, the general tenure of social media, not just in, in Ethiopia. It's pretty ugly in the United States, of course. Um, in fact, it's very ugly in the United States, of course, yeah. uh, that Ethiopia also suffers from that. I mean, I, I, I would say 
the other challenge in Ethiopia is they, they've shut down the internet from Tigray. I mean, there is no reporting directly from Tigray. Uh, they, they just began to open up communications with uh, Mekele, the regional capital, and that's how the New York Times was able to get text messages back and forth. But it's extremely difficult to get news from on the ground. You do get some of the humanitarian uh, organizations reporting on the refugee circum- uh, situation, whether it's the UN or the Red Cross. You know, there's people who are putting up, this is what we saw, or this is what we heard when we interviewed uh, refugees. But it's extremely, uh, th- there's not nearly enough good information on what's happening in Ethiopia today. Uh, we'll get that uh, for our listeners. We'll get that New York Times article linked up uh, in our description and on our website. Uh, but Brian, I think uh, you want to have our last word? Yeah, sure. Professor, I just you know want to thank you for such an important and educational conversation. I mean, you gave us this toolkit uh, to kind of dig deeper, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. And despite uh, you being a Spartan professor, right, you got your master's uh, from MSU. Andre <laughs> and I as Wolverines didn't hold that against you. Uh, <laughs> My, 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 my PhD, though, was from Washington, uh, from uh, Johns Hopkins uh, SICE, so just down the road from GW. Right. Well, uh, again, Professor, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to explain this very complicated situation to us. Uh, we really do appreciate it. No, I, I, I'm, it's always a pleasure to talk on Ethiopia, and I appreciate your interest. Thank you very much. To hear other fascinating conversations, Subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast. <laughs>